Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. And hello everyone, this is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist, with another edition of the Candida Chronicles. Today's topic is going to be something a bit unusual, because this uh, information is typically not required or necessarily applied to treating candidiasis. This information is actually more in line with treating viral conditions, but since viral conditions are so often accompanying candidiasis that has merit to discuss because it's a very tricky subject. Most people would believe that the the statement or the phrase stimulating the immune system would be a good thing. This gives the person the idea that you're boosting your immunity and therefore doing something very good. And generally speaking, that could be thought of as being true. However, when it comes to viral conditions, we, it's a completely different story. Particularly the types of viruses that uh, we're going to discuss that this pertains to are the herpes class viruses, which of them, Epstein-Barr, Cytomeglia, uh, are some of the top and the most common ones that have affected people in the last 20, 30 years and that have uh, entered in into the topic of chronic fatigue syndrome. The original model of chronic fatigue syndrome was based on the Epstein-Barr virus. Since then, the term chronic fatigue syndrome has been used to denote low thyroid conditions, anemia, adrenal exhaustion, uh, any type of infection which depletes the adrenal glands, such as candida, or even parasitic infections. Essentially, anything that leads to a chronic depletion in energy and reserve has been uh, kicked over and referred to as chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, the insurance companies have something to do with this because when the insurance companies started to pay for the diagnosis codes of chronic fatigue syndrome, they essentially started to alter that original model that was based on strictly having Epstein-Barr. The insurance companies would be willing to pay for chronic fatigue syndrome treatment if the patient was declared as being chronically anemic or having adrenal um, hypocorticism, let's say, 
which basically is low cortisol levels. So the, the model of this has changed. We're going to discuss today the viruses that pertain to the original model of chronic fatigue. And very often there are many herbs and different products that are sold over the internet and to the unsuspecting patients that are supposed to help you with your viral condition by stimulating your immune system. It's actually a lack of knowledge on the part of the companies that formulate and sell these products that get the person sometimes in trouble. We had a patient just today who was telling me that they were taking this immune-stimulating formula, which had various substances, all known to be helpful and to boost the immune system. Things like, here as an example, echinacea, uh, herbs like astragalus, some of the Chinese mushrooms that are known to stimulate the immune system. Uh, virtually any of these herbs or substances which stimulate the immune system could all be put in this same category. This patient was telling me how since they started taking this formula, they were feeling worse. Now, if we understand the virus and understand essentially how a virus of the Epstein-Barr nature works, we have to start understanding uh, the immune system a bit. So today I'm going to give you a Reader's Digest version some, somewhat of the immune system, enough knowledge so that you can understand and follow what happens in this case. Um, there are two parts to the immune system, essentially. We have a, the sympathetic nervous system, which is headed by your adrenal glands, your thyroid gland, and the sympathetic nervous system stimulates, and we'll call it an adrenal-initiated immune response, or a, or a sympathetic, innervated immune response. The sympathetic nervous system is actually able to stimulate the immune system by stimulating your adrenals and your endocrine system. Then we have a parasympathetic immune response, which is an immune response which is kind of going on in the background all the time. It's controlled by your parasympathetic nervous system, and it goes directly to your thymus gland and to the tissues that are associated with the thymus, which would include the liver, the spleen, and the lymph system. Under an acute attack, the sympathetic nervous system is brought online to fight the infection. The parasympathetic would already be online, already be fighting the infection, so the sympathetic nervous system would then key in, let's say, in the event the parasympathetic nervous system is not handling the infection. Part of the mechanism involved in this sympathetic nervous system involvement would be the release of interferon. In order to have the body release large amounts of interferon, the body must mobilize certain elements, certain nutrients. Among them is germanium, 
Germanium is long known as an antioxidant, but germanium is also an immune booster in that it stimulates interferon to be released. There are other vitamins which do as well. Other vitamins and minerals also can stimulate interferon release. But amongst the most interesting ones that I've had the opportunity to work with and actually use an application is germanium. Because when taken in a sequential uh, form, uh, the release of interferon from germanium could be quite spectacular. And what I mean by a, a controlled form, generally we'd have the patient take one germanium pill, and then the second day take two, the third day take three, and maybe uh, do this for five or six days until on the fifth or sixth day they were taking five or six pills all at once. And then we would have them stop this for uh, three days to four days and then restart the cycle again with one. So building the germanium up to a high dose and then suddenly stopping it and then restarting this pulses the release of the interferon and brings about some pretty amazing things. The same thing can be done with other nutrients like glutathione and vitamin C and others which bring about a similar effect. When the body releases large amounts of interferon, it then starts to produce, as a result of that, more white blood cells. Amongst the white blood cells that are being produced are the killer T cells and the B cells. Interestingly enough, the B cells are the resident of most of these viruses like Epstein-Barr. Epstein-Barr actually finds itself at home living in infected B cells. So when the interferon is released and more B cells are produced, the Epstein-Barr virus simply jumps from one group of B cells into the new group and infects them and therefore is taking up home in these B cells. Now, this virtually has the same effect as the virus being spread. When a person has active Epstein-Barr virus, the more B cells that are produced, the more uh, of, let's say, a home you are making or giving to the Epstein-Barr virus. So in, in actual fact, the virus ends up spreading. You actually spread the virus when you have a active Epstein-Barr virus and when you then stimulate the immune system in this manner. Now this is very interesting because this is not what people expect. This is not at all what someone is trying to accomplish when they're trying to deal with their condition. Um, a person who takes substances that stimulate interferon, which then stimulate the production of more T cells and B cells and whatnot, is actually doing the opposite of what he wants. By stimulating these cells, he can cause a rapid spread of the infection. In the case of the opportunistic infection, such as Epstein-Barr, in order to treat this correctly, you actually need to bypass one's own immune system in the beginning, because if your own immune system was going to handle it, it would have done it by now. It's very important that you reduce the infection initially, and by stimulating interferon, 
and stimulating B cell and T cell production, you're not going to get anywhere. The idea of stimulating the immune system only comes into play in a uh, practical sense when the virus is in remission. This is, uh, in dealing with the viruses this way, this is kind of a similar conundrum to what people encounter with candida. You see, um, as many of you listening to this broadcast would know by reading my articles and listening to podcasts on candida, there are certain tricks in treating candida that if you don't follow these tricks, you end up not only not getting results, but you can actually make the whole condition worse. You see. Um, the same is true in dealing with viruses. It may not be the exact mechanism. In fact, it's not even close to being the exact mechanism, but it's a similar concept. With candida, the tricks of the trade are the fact that candida becomes drug resistant very quickly. Um, so you need to rotate your medicines. This is not so true with the viruses, but it is true that there are similar tricks of the trade that need to be known in order not to make the matter worse when you end up treating it. So uh, I, I, I think the, the uh, centerpiece of understanding this entire matter is in understanding how viruses operate, especially the viruses we're discussing now, which are the essentially the uh, Epstein-Barr type of virus. So to repeat this again, the Epstein-Barr type of virus lives in your white blood cells. It particularly lives in the B cells. When you stimulate the immune system and when you're stimulating the production of white cells and B cells, by raising interferon, which is essentially, which is, which is gonna happen when you take immune stimulating things, you are increasing the rental sites, let's say, for the virus. Because the viruses infect the B cells and live in the B cells and multiply and replicate in the B cells, if you do something which is immune stimulating, and you cause the body to produce more B cells, you're basically allowing the virus to inhabit more cells in your body, and you're giving the virus a place to live, and you're allowing the virus to spread and then infect more B cells. Uh, to my knowledge, and in the research that I've done over the years, the T killer cells do not have quite the same problem. If we were to draw more kind of a diagram on this, what you would find is that the virus actually infects the B cell and takes up resonance there. As more B cells are produced, more viral cells are replicated or produced, and they then invade these new B cells. The B cells release uh, killer cells and antibodies, which are aimed at attacking the virus. 
And here's where it becomes very tricky and where you have to then respect viruses. When the B cell releases its antibody to go out and kill the virus, just as you could imagine a heat-seeking missile, the antibody emerges from the B cell. It goes out and it starts looking for the virus. So where does it find the virus? Well, of course, it finds the virus in the B cell. Maybe the one that it just came out of, maybe a different one. Nonetheless, it's going to find the virus in a B cell. So the antibody then turns around and goes after the virus and attacks the B cell. Just like the heat-seeking missile, when it's fired, could theoretically leave its site of entry and then come back and attack the very site that released it because that's where the enemy might be. This is what is really, I believe, the best example of an autoimmune situation. This is why Epstein-Barr is so highly recognized as being founded in autoimmune problems. If the thyroid gland, for instance, was infected by Epstein-Barr, then the, the immune system would start producing antibodies against Epstein-Barr, and if these antibodies and killer cells find the virus in the thyroid gland, they are then going to attack the thyroid gland. The same thing is true of any other scenario. So when you take things to stimulate your immune system, may they be vitamin C, may they be germanium, may it be zinc, may it be any of the popular herbs that are used to stimulate the immune system. If you do it at the wrong time, if you do it at a time while the virus is active and rampant and moving through your system, you are going to spread the virus by increasing the B cells in the body because the things that you're taking to boost your immune system ultimately stimulate an interferon release, which then makes more B cells, which then gives more potential homes or as I called them before, rental occupants for the virus to invade so that the B cell could then shoot out its, its missile seeking the virus only to have the missile turn around and come right back and attack the B cell itself or whatever gland or system the virus has invaded. So this is why it is dangerous and bad to stimulate the immune system when you don't know what you're doing. This is why you'll take things to boost your immune system, quote unquote, and you'll feel worse. Now, some of you out there are going to be sophisticated enough to assign this phenomena to die off. And that would be incorrect. This is not die off that you're experiencing. You're experiencing a worsening of your condition because you're actually stimulating a spread of the virus itself. That's quite different than die off. In a die off, what's happening is the outside envelope of the virus is being disintegrated and other uh, anti-infective agents that you might be taking or your own immune system is then attacking the virus 
stopping the replication of the virus and killing, essentially, the virus. And there, you may be experiencing some sort of a die-off, but not the other way around. This goes back, of course, again, to why the Biamonte program and the Biamonte philosophy has different steps that, that are taken to arrest an infection. Um, in the Biamonte method, how a virus would be addressed is just as valid and just as innovative, as a matter of fact, as how candida is addressed. It happens to be, for whatever circumstances, that the Biamonte method had never become particularly famous for addressing viruses as it had been become famous for addressing candida. But as far as the validity and innovation and a unique way of addressing this, I believe that they're pretty much equal. So in the Biamonte method of addressing the virus, we do not stimulate the immune system. Uh, totally not. The first thing that we do in the Biamonte method of addressing a virus, and some of this material, by the way, you're not going to find on the website because some of this material is um, newly re revised and hasn't made it to the website yet. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, what we're going to find initially is that in a Biamonte method of addressing viruses, there is so, sort of a phase zero that is done where the body's pH is addressed. To um, address the virus, the pH of the body would want to be more alkaline. So a phase zero program that somewhat alkalizes the body is one of the first things that's done. Uh, another thing, which is even more important, is that in a phase zero to address the viruses, a parasite program is done. Now, why that is, this goes back to the work of Holda Clark, who discussed how various parasites, particularly the human intestinal fluke, were actually the host of the virus. Uh, Dr. Clark claimed, and she has some significant uh, studies to back this up, both empirical and studies that she did herself, uh, she claims that the human intestinal fluke and perhaps various other parasites actually host the virus in the human body. So when the human body contracts something like Epstein-Barr or, or some such virus, it's not actually your body and your own B cells that particularly are the host. It's actually the parasite, the intestinal fluke, which is the host of the virus. Um, I believe that her data is definitely conclusive, but I think as far as the details on it, it may be a bit incomplete. Because when the, I believe that when the virus enters the body and is acting as the host of the virus, that the, um, let's say, the opportunity for the human B cells to then host the virus becomes shared with the parasite. Because we, we do know that the B cells become infected. If the parasite was the exclusive host of the virus, I don't believe you could argue that your B cells should then be infected by the virus. Uh, be that as it may, though, as I was saying, so in the phase zero for addressing viruses, we not only tend to make the body more alkaline, but we also are doing a parasite cleanse to eliminate the possibility that any parasites are hosting the virus. 
Then when we move to phase one, we have a similar approach as we would to candida in phase one, where we're using antiviral substances that are not going to stimulate the immune system, but are going to act directly on the virus to attack the virus. Now, many of the substances that you could buy if you went to the health food store and said, I want to kill my virus, are going to be things that are going to stimulate interferon. Unfortunately, the health food store people are not knowledgeable enough to differentiate substances which are themselves independent antivirals as opposed to things which would stimulate the immune system. So because of that, I'm going to give you some examples of, uh, of these medicines to make some kind of type of good clarification here. Uh, substances which destroy viruses, which do not necessarily stimulate interferon, would be a substance like monolaurin and any of the versions of monolaurin, which are known to disintegrate the outside envelope of the virus. Uh, substances like lomatium, which is a North American herb, is known to inhibit the replication of viruses. Bloodroot and celadine are also known to do this. The anti antiviral, antibacterial, antifungal combination formula called biocidin is also able to do this. Another substance made by the same company called Bioradiance also able to do this. Olive leaf extract, also a very powerful antiviral. Now, all these substances, what they're doing is not attacking the virus by, by stimulating your immune system. It's attacking the virus directly. Oxygenating substances like biochlordox or the original formula from Mexico called dioxychlor, which is known as DC3, kill the virus by smashing it with oxygen. Food-grade hydrogen peroxide does the same thing, so does ozone. While a person is rotating these items, it's extremely important that they're taking enzymes that help to essentially destroy the outside coating of the virus. This outside coating or envelope needs to be broken down. The enzymes that accomplish this are trypsin and chymotrypsin, also, bromelain, papain, and a particular flavonoid that comes from ginkgo have all been used to break down the outside coating of this virus. Uh, there are various protolytic enzyme treatments that were first made popular in Germany in the 1960s, which from them have stemmed various uh, important enzyme mixtures Many of them have been used at Sloan Kettering and some other hospitals. They've also been used independently. These enzymes have the ability to digest cancer cells and digest the outside envelope of the virus. And they need to be used in conjunction with these rotated medicines that are actually killing the virus. When this phase is accomplished and it's complete, the second phase of a... Uh, antiviral program like this would be somewhat similar to what's done in our treatment for candida, uh, but there would be more emphasis excuse me, on maintaining and strengthening the intestinal flora 
Since your intestinal flora is the first line of defense against any of these microbes entering your system. Also, support and detoxification for the liver is very important because the liver ends up getting hit very often with these infections. In the third phase, there may be more attention paid to the liver and now attention paid to the adrenal and thyroid glands as they're responsible for keeping up your normal immune function. And adrenal and thyroid preparations can be thought of as being antiviral in their own right because of how they help your immune system. And now at this time, we would assume the virus is in remission. It should be before that you entered this area of the treatment. And at this point, when we enter phase four of this treatment, we now would boost the immune system. This is the time for you now to be taking your astragalus, your echinacea, your germanium, your massive doses of vitamin C, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to boost your immune system, to keep the virus suppressed. So in the, the actual goal of this type of treatment is to attack the virus and disable the virus. The argument could become, are we actually killing the virus or are we just stopping its replication? Well, that's an interesting argument that a lot of people could have. The Centers for Disease Control claim that the substance monolaurin is actually able to destroy viruses. Many people say you can't kill a virus, you can only stop its replication. I've seen in, in my own work, in my own practice, and in studies that we've done in-house with HIV patients, I've seen viral loads of HIV patients skyrocket. Not because they were getting better, but because DNA of the HIV virus was being released in high amounts because the preparations we were giving them were actually destroying the virus. A viral load test can't tell the difference between a live virus or a dead virus. It's only reporting to the amount of DNA that's coming from the virus. So if you put a person on a viral program, which contains things that are uh, very effective at actually killing a virus, the end result of that would be an increase in viral load because the virus is being destroyed and more viral DNA is being released. This is common sense. And we have seen this time after time at the Biamonte Center to be true with HIV as an example. The interesting thing is that during that time, you'll also see the person going through a type of Herxheimer reaction, which will be resolved. And the key thing will be after that point, the viral load will drop very low. It will drop easily to normal. So one has to actually ride this out for four to five months in order to see it come to fruition and actually see that a viral load will elevate only then to come down into a normal range. When the viral load then comes down into the normal range, it validates the fact that the elevation in the viral load you had initially was due to a true die-off. You actually were killing the virus. So are we killing the virus? Are we putting it into a remission? I'm not going to be the judge of that um, at this point. I'm simply going to say that either is possible and either is, either is occurring on the early stages of this type of treatment. So that by the time we get to the phase four, we then are able to take these various preparations, which will stimulate interferon, stimulate the immune system, and now be watch guard out 
to make sure that the virus does not turn on again and that we're keeping the virus inactive and suppressed or away from you so that the virus is now functionally considered gone. There are as many as 25 different substances which could be used to enhance the immune system at this phase. I named merely a handful. Uh, I named various Chinese herbs like astragalus and there's a few more, echinacea, vitamin C, germanium, any of these things which are able to stimulate interferon, even sunlight for that matter. Um, stun, sunlight stimulates interferon. And I'm sure somewhere along the line, someone's going to ask the question, well, some, if that's true, should someone with active Epstein-Barr or an active virus go out in the sun? Because if they get too much sun, they're going to stimulate interferon and then go through the whole cycle, as I mentioned earlier. Well, that's a good question. Theoretically, I'd have to say no, they shouldn't. But I can't say that we've ever run a study sending viral infected people out into the sun to see if they got worse or not. That would be interesting. I don't know if we're going to have any takers to volunteer for that. But certainly, that's an interesting point. So there you have it. This is why, in fact, you don't arbitrarily stimulate your immune system. I think the word arbitrarily is the key thing. It's, in a way, sad and frustrating to me that in this country, you can buy these different preparations and take them haphazardly and end up making yourself worse. Um, I'm not one who is for tremendous regulation. I personally philosophically believe that too much regulation, as we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years, has adversely affected this country. But, however, you can see the rightness to this when you look at the fact that people can buy substances which could end up hurting them. This is why in other countries they are a little bit stricter. They have a little bit a better heads up. Now, there's a fine line to be drawn here. One could say that the FDA should have greater control over these matters so that people don't end up hurting themselves or make their viral conditions worse, as I've dictated possible here today on this program. But on the other hand, the FDA doesn't have this data that I just gave you. They, they know about as much to send a monkey to the moon as they would know about this information I gave you here today. Then you have to wonder what's the purpose of the control. Is the purpose of the control to have a vested interest and control natural substances which could possibly help millions of people in order to benefit pharmaceutical companies which have trade names on medications which cost thousands of dollars a pill? Or is it to actually help people? That, my friends, becomes the catch-22. That's the conundrum that we don't know necessarily. So regulation of substances is as valuable as it helps people. And in this case, people need to be educated in terms of how substances actually work, what to expect to happen, so that they know how not to make themselves worse. I would by far rather have a very highly educated uh, populace that knows how these herbs truly work and knows how to use them than I would rather have the government regulating them 
in order to protect us from harming ourselves. <clears throat> We're going to gain far more control and benefit in our own health system if people are educated in, let's say, uh, well, from the time up. Let's say from the time that they're in uh, grade school. Why don't we educate children as to basic herbs, basic vitamins, how these substances are used correctly? If we had a school system which had built into it courses and a whole curriculum on how vitamins and herbs actually work, you would have people graduating from high school who could go into a health food store and adequately select nutrients and supplements and herbs and homeopathy to treat themselves correctly and not be haphazard and make themselves worse for some unknown reason that they don't have a clue about. As opposed to having all these substances controlled by the government who is really at the beck and call of a lot of these corporations who are selling you drugs. So that, that will be my ending talking point on the subject. But far better that we're in control and we make mistakes with these substances than we allow the government to protect us from ourselves. And this has been another issue of the Candida Chronicles. I hope this information is useful. And please tune in again next Tuesday for the next edition of the Candida Chronicles. This is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, certified clinical nutritionist. Michael holds a doctorate of nutropathy and is a New York State certified clinical nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.